today. If you would stand with me this morning, and uh, we are going to read um, from Exodus, the book of Exodus, and um, beginning at chapter 6, and uh, you will forgive me, there's a section in here where you'll, you'll be thankful that I am reading, and you'll understand why. Um, and uh, Exodus chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his hand, or his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and uh, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me, How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the, a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath. Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amran took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amran being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, or Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, 
Asur, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the, of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, it is a joy to be here with you, uh, to be able to bring God's word. Thank you for just your partnership and your ministry here in the Castro Valley, East Bay area. And so we're so thankful for a like-minded sister church here. And just so you know, we will continue to regularly pray for you guys as well. If you can, let me just pray one more time as we jump into the text and see what God has for us from this passage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, you gave us your word as a gift, so thank you. But God, we cannot understand it apart from the help of your spirit, so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us. Give us the eyes to see what you are speaking to us through this passage. God, convict us in our hearts, open our hearts to receive your word, to know how we can apply it to our lives. And so, God, we pray that we would leave transformed, growing in love for you and then in love for others. We pray this all for your glory and the good of your people. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have uh, your Bible, you're probably in Exodus 6. But if you can, put your finger there and turn with me to Psalm 73. And as you turn there, I just want to tell you, you know, I love the Psalms. Uh, I love the Psalms. They are so personal. Uh, they cover the range of human experience. They show us that, hey, there's people who are like us. There's people who are like us who experience a wide range of situations that just move our hearts in different ways. So in the Psalms, we see so many honest, heartfelt interactions between people and God. And in Psalm 73, we see and we hear the feelings the experiences, the prayers of one man. One man who expresses the experiences and feelings of so many people, like the people of Israel in Exodus, and like many of us today. So in Psalm 73, the psalmist begins by saying this, Truly, God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. I mean, right there, the psalmist, he knows his Bible. Right? He knows that God is good, that God is faithful to his people. But yet, beginning in verse 2, we see that this confessional theological belief, right, what he knew in his head, what he can write down on a theological exam, right, it was not what the psalmist was experiencing in regular daily life. So yes, I know that in my head, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But verse 2 begins, but as for me and my life experiences, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? For, here's the reason, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault to them. And they, they mock God saying, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Then verse 12 sums up the experience and the groanings of the psalmist. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Now friends, the experiences, the feelings, and the prayers of this psalmist, I think they're like many of us, and they are very much like those of Israel in Exodus by the end of chapter 5. So going back to Exodus, let me just briefly set the context so you see the similarities. If you know Exodus, in Exodus 1 through 2, in chapters 1 through 2, God reveals that the people of Israel, they were ruthlessly oppressed. They were oppressed by wicked people. They were filled with suffering. And even though God promised to deliver them in chapter 3, God strengthened Moses, God gave them amazing signs in chapter 4, Even though God did all of this, the actual life experiences of God's people in chapter 5 brought all of their hope just crashing down and into the experiences of the psalmist in Psalm 73. I mean, just scan chapter 5 with me. In chapter 5, in the beginning, Moses comes to Pharaoh. He's confident, having just received signs from God. He's confident. He proclaims the commands of the good God of Israel, let my people go. But then, instead of listening to God, and obeying God's word to set Israel free, Pharaoh, he mocked God. He denied the authority of the Lord, and he wickedly asserted his human authority by increasing the heavy burdens and ruthless oppression upon the people of Israel. So by the end of chapter 5, the people of Israel, they were suffering, they were hungry, they were beaten down, they were under oppression, and they were experiencing injustice. And in contrast, wicked Pharaoh and the wicked Egyptians, they were arrogant, they were well-fed, they were seemingly always at ease and increasing in riches. And when the people of Israel saw all of this, they succumbed to the temptation of the psalmist in Psalm 73 because they stopped believing the character of God. They stopped believing the promises of God and they complained against Moses and Aaron, God's agents of deliverance. And by the end of chapter 5, if you look at verses 22 to 23, even Moses was where the psalmist was, saying, God, why did you even send me? 
Because all that you and your people have experienced thus far, it is not goodness, it is not deliverance, but more evil and harder slavery. So in essence, everything outward on earth, everything in their earthly circumstances seem to confirm their doubts. The reality that the wicked and arrogant, they do prosper, while the innocent and the good suffer without help and without hope. And it is into this context, this context of hope being shattered, that God begins to speak yet again in chapter 6. And listen, God responds. God responds to the people's life experiences not by denying their pain. Right? Say, hey, just think positive thoughts. God doesn't do that. God responds to the people's life experiences not by minimizing their suffering. Say, hey, it is, really isn't that bad. Or it's not as bad as it could be. And God responds to his people's life experiences not by downplaying the real strength and the prosperity of the wicked. Instead, God responds to his people's suffering and their hard life experiences by just lifting their gaze. By lifting their gaze to his incomparably greater strength, his goodness, his faithfulness, and his justice. Their hope was shattered because all that they were focusing on were their circumstances, their life experiences. So God responds by showing Moses and his people a greater and a bigger vision of who he is as the Lord. The Lord who made promises and the Lord who is faithful to keep all his promises to deliver his people. Now since Brother Rod read the passage already, I'm not going to read it again. Um, But let me just walk you through this passage quickly to show you God's big main point. And then let's unpack it as we go through the passage more slowly. So in response to Moses' prayer of complaining doubt at the end of chapter 5, that all that Pharaoh has done was evil to God's people, and that God has not delivered his people at all, chapter 6 verse 1 begins with God speaking. And God reminding his people that yes, while all that evil of Pharaoh is true, but the Lord is still in the picture. And he responds to Moses saying, now, right? You have seen the best that Pharaoh and all his earthly power can do, but now, now you're going to see what I, the Lord, will do to Pharaoh. Then in verses 2 through 8, God repeats his promise of deliverance to his people. And in verses 2, 6, and 8, we see that God's promise of deliverance is rooted in who he is. Three times he declares, I am the Lord. So from God's deliverance, Israel will know that God is the Lord, their God. And then the rest of chapter 6 reveals that there is nothing, nothing on this earth that can stop God's power to deliver his people. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, that's pretty much a review of what's going on so far in Exodus and a summary. So he summarizes his promise of deliverance yet again in case they still don't get it, right? God is clear that his all-powerful, his faithful deliverance of his people is not only so that his people will know that he is the Lord, but chapter 7, verses 4 through 5 is clear that God will deliver his people with such great acts of judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt so that all of them, all of Egypt, will know that he is the Lord as well. So with that said, as God seeks to comfort and give hope to his suffering people, that he is the all-powerful and faithful deliverer, this is the main point. The main point God wants to make clear is that he is the Lord. 
and there is no other. God is God, and there is absolutely no other. Therefore, given this purpose, the main call for all people is clear. We must glorify God as God. And in glorifying God as God, we must recognize that there's at least two aspects of who God is in his all-powerful and faithful deliverance. So for his people, God is the faithful deliverer. God is the faithful deliverer. But then the question comes, who are they delivered from? I mean, if we think about it, in this world, if there was no oppression, no injustice, no slavery of God's people, there would be no need of deliverance, right? But as we often experience in life, and as the people of Israel have been experiencing Egypt, God's people, we have enemies, both human and demonic, who seek to enslave us, oppress us, and kill us. Therefore, in being the faithful deliverer of all his people, it necessarily means that God is also the fierce defeater of all his enemies. So with that said, glorifying God in these two aspects of who he is as the all-powerful and faithful deliverer will formulate the outline for the rest of the sermon. First, glorify God as the fierce defeater of all of his enemies. And then second, glorify God as the faithful deliverer of all of his people. Now, before we go forth, I just want to make one big point in relation to relevance and application for us today. So this is the Old Testament, so everything we see here in Exodus is primarily physical, right? It's temporal. But as sort of Scripture unfolds, we see that all of this points to the second and greater Exodus that Jesus Christ leads. And so therefore, the second and true Exodus, it is spiritual, it is eternal, Okay, so while we're talking about God being the faithful deliverer, yes, there may be some things like physical in this world that God may deliver us from, but that may not be the case, but that's okay because God is still faithful because we see that his ultimate deliverance is going to be in the future new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so with that caveat in mind, as we go through this, let's look at the first point. We must glorify God as the fierce defeater of all his enemies. Once again, in chapter 6, verse 1, we see that God is fierce in strength. Fierce in strength as the defeater of all his enemies. So as mentioned earlier, God responds to Moses saying, Now, you have seen the very best that Pharaoh and all his earthly power can do, but now you're going to see my power. You're going to see my, the Lord's power. Because Pharaoh, he thought, Pharaoh thought he had successfully used his strong hand to oppress God's people increasing their heavy burdens, punishing them for not making enough bricks without straw. Pharaoh thought that he had used his his strong hand to destroy the hope of God's people so that they would not listen to God's words, thinking that his strength could turn God's promises into lies. And in all human estimation, if God was not God, that would all be true. Because Pharaoh was strong. Pharaoh was able to enact all of these wicked things against God's people. But because God is God and there is no other, Pharaoh's power and Pharaoh's strength would only last for a short season. So the Lord continues to say to Moses in verses 2 through 3, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now did you catch the pronouns God used in his promise? So whose strong hand? 
whose strong hand will send out the people of Israel from Egypt? Is it God's hand or Pharaoh's hand? It's just Pharaoh's hand. God doesn't just say, I will bring my people out with my strong hand to bring them out of the land, which he does do. Rather, the fierceness, the severity of what God will do to Pharaoh for being his enemy and oppressing, enslaving, and hurting his people, the fierce and terrifying strength of God will make Pharaoh want to use all of his earthly power no longer to hurt God's people, but to drive them out of the land as quickly as possible to avoid further destruction and greater defeat. So in battling and defeating his enemies, God doesn't just like cover his people while they run and seek to escape while the enemy tries to use all of their power trying to prevent that escape. No, what God will do to his enemies, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians with his fierce strength, it will utterly crush them. It will utterly break them down so that Pharaoh and Egypt, they will literally beg Israel to leave and take whatever they want with them. That's how strong God is. And friends, as we see in Exodus 6, verse 6, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, given how Pharaoh and Egypt treated God's people, God's defeat of them is not only fierce in strength, but is also fierce in justice. Fierce in justice. In Exodus 6, 6, God says that he will redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great acts, not just of power, but of what? Quote, judgment. Right? Egypt had not believed God's word. Egypt had committed great sins and injustice against God's people. Also in Exodus 7, 3-5, we see that Egypt is filled with arrogance, hardness. Even though God will multiply signs and wonders in Egypt, Pharaoh still will not listen to Moses as God's representative. It is only, it is only when the full weight of God's strength and great acts of judgment comes that Pharaoh and Egypt will be utterly humbled and then act according to God's purposes and know that God is God and there is no other. Simply put, the battle between God and his enemies isn't just a battle where we see the stronger man win. Rather, the battle between God and his enemies where God unleashes great acts of power to crush and annihilate his enemies, they are in actuality acts of God's just judgment, his punishment. So then what does this mean? What does this mean? Friends, it means that the severity, the terror, the fierceness of God's destruction and defeat of his enemies, they are good, they are fair, and they are necessary. So when God unleashes his strength to utterly crush and destroy his enemies, it is not done out of rash impulse. It is not done out of impatient frustration. It is not done out of spiteful revenge. Rather, when God unleashes his strength to annihilate and obliterate his enemies, it is because his nature, his character of goodness, holiness, and justice, it demands it. It is always out of justice and giving to his enemies what they deserve for rebelling against him. And friends, in light of the whole of Scripture, God is clear that his enemies 
are not just Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but his enemies are all of humanity, including us. In essence, all of humanity, all of us here today, we know that God is God. But many times, we simply don't care. Because we don't want to submit to God's word. And we would rather create our own system of rules and pleasures and seek to do whatever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, however we want, with whoever we want. And we do this in so many areas. We do this in the areas of sexuality, in relationships, while driving, while at work, with our money, with our time, and with our resources. And we create our own system of rules, even in relation to religion where we oftentimes pick and choose different passages we want to agree with and apply, and other ones we say, well, that's really not relevant, or it's out of context. And then at other times, we think that the Word of God is maybe simply just theology for us, instead of meant to be theology to be applied, to transform all of life. And so we create Christianity to be what we want it to be, not what God designed it to be. So simply put, many times we too, like Pharaoh and like Egypt, we know that God is God and there is no other. But instead of glorifying God as God, we seek to be God in his place and rule our lives according to our own desires, our own wishes, our own dreams. So friends, when God unleashes the fierceness of his wrath against his enemies, which could include us, we must confess that it is always good fair, and necessary because of his holy nature and character. Now you may be here and you may have a strong hand keeping your life somewhat together. You may have strong backup watching out for you, being willing to protect you. And you may even have strong weapons that can hold off and defeat many other people in this world. But I want to tell you, you will never defeat God. God is God, and there is no other. So your, my, our quote-unquote success in this world, in living against God, it is not because God lacks power. It is because God is patient. But God in his timing, with 100% certainty, he will be the fierce defeater of all of his enemies. So I pray that if you're here and you're living that way, away from God, that you would turn back to God before that day of fierce and just judgment comes. And you are utterly crushed, annihilated, and defeated with no more second chance available. Friend, all of humanity, including Israel, including all of us, we are all sinners. And we're all sinners deserving death before the holy and just God. But the story of God doesn't end there. Because but God, but God, because God is also patient and loving and merciful, God chose to provide the one and only way for any enemy of God to be forgiven, delivered, and reconciled back to God as his friend and become part of his people. God chose to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live the righteous, sinless life that no one else lived. And then Jesus went to die on the cross to bear the punishment God's enemies deserve. 
and amazingly, on the cross, God's strong hand came down, not on us as his enemies, but it came down on Jesus who stood in our place. On the cross, the wrath, the just wrath of God was poured out, not on us as his enemies, was poured out on his son as our substitute. On the cross, God's justice fell, not on us as we deserve, but on Jesus in our stead. And then, because Jesus' life was completely righteous, his death fully satisfied God's justice. So then, to demonstrate this, three days later, God resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead in glorious victory over God's ultimate enemy, Satan, who is the strong man ruling this fallen and broken world. And so now, because of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection defeating Satan, when any and all sinners repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, then Satan, the strong man, he no longer has any power over him or her. As one forgiven of all sin, covered with Jesus Christ's righteousness, Satan's strong hand must let all sinners in Christ, them all free out of his demonic kingdom to enter God's glorious and victorious kingdom. So friend, if you're here and you have not done this, be freed from Satan's oppressive demonic rule over you today. Repent of your sin and rebel against God and come to Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. Jesus Christ, he is the infinitely greater strong man who defeated Satan and who is the only one worthy of our service and worship. So if you're here and you want to leave the kingdom of Satan and voluntarily bow your knee and worship to God through Jesus, please talk to Rod or one of the men and leaders of this church or the friend who brought you or talk to me after the service. But Christian brothers and sisters, for those of us who have been reconciled to God as his friends, to become part of his people, while Jesus has won for us secure victory and deliverance from sin and Satan, Jesus will not complete that victory until he comes again. And until that day, Satan, he still has some temporary and limited power to inflict upon us, his, the church of God, rejection, persecution, suffering, martyrdom, but when that happens in this world, take heart. Because the God who is with us is infinitely stronger than Satan and all of his allies here in this world. So until that day of final judgment, our call as God's people is to warn, to warn people of God's fierce judgment and defeat of all his enemies. Now listen, this is our call. Our call is to warn, warn God's enemies of God's fierce judgment and defeat of all. It is not, our calling is not to enact that judgment here on earth. Our calling is not to take justice into our own hands against our enemies. Why? Because if any enemy of God repents and believes in Christ, they can instantaneously become our friends and Christ's friends and join Christ's family by grace alone. 
And on the other hand, if these people, if they never come to Christ, then Jesus, when he returns again, he will rectify all injustice here on this earth. And all of those who remain God's enemies, they will be eternally crushed by the almighty judge, the just God, who fiercely defeats all of his enemies. And when God fiercely defeats all of his enemies, then the deliverance of his people will be complete. Which brings us to our second point. Let us as God's people glorify God as the faithful deliverer of all his people. In Exodus 6, 2 through 8, God gives Moses and the readers some glorious promises of deliverance. Promises of deliverance that span into the past, reach into the present, and endure securely into the future. God is the faithful deliverer. Look at me at verses 2 through 4. God reveals his faithfulness that stems from promises he made in the past. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So God uses covenant language here to highlight his faithfulness. God reminds Moses that he is the same God of the famous patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God reminds Moses that way in the past, before the patriarchs came even close to looking like a nation, that God already promised to give them the land of Canaan as their home, not just as visiting sojourners. So even from many generations prior, God promised deliverance and freedom from slavery to Egypt. Moreover, God also explains to Moses a further revelation of his name to give Moses greater hope and confidence in God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises. When God appeared to the patriarchs, he primarily appeared to them as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And this was particularly hope-giving for the patriarchs because they were small, they were weak, and so many things in their earthly circumstances tempted them to unbelief and doubt. And so think about it. Abraham, who was he? He was old, his wife was barren, but God Almighty, El Shaddai, was fully sufficient to keep his promises and provide a child in their old age. God provided for Isaac when he faced famine and enemies. God even provided blessing for Isaac and his offspring, even though Isaac tried to personally defeat God's plan by trying to bless Esau and not Jacob. And with Jacob, when he had to flee his hometown and his family because Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him, God Almighty, El Shaddai, provided for him not just food, but shelter, a family, and then the 12 sons of the tribe of Israel. So God is reminding Moses that even from the beginning of his covenantal promises, he, God and God alone, was the one who needed to act and be almighty and be faithful to keep his promises. When they were weak, he was strong. And now as God reveals to Moses that he was not only God Almighty, El Shaddai, to the patriarchs, but he is also the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal I Am. God is hammering home his faithfulness to keep his promises. Therefore, Moses, he should believe 
in the full continuity between past promises made to the patriarchs and the present need. The present need for hope and for faith in the difficult and seemingly impossible situation of oppression and slavery now. Then in verse 5. In verse 5, God reveals that his faithfulness doesn't just stem from promises he made in the past, but it reaches into the present. And it reaches into the present in real and personal ways. So God encourages Moses and his people that he isn't just this aloof God, right, that, that's in the distant who winds up the clock and just sort of lets it run in the universe. That's not who God is. Rather, God tells his people that he is with them. He hears their groanings. In chapter 2, he says he sees their slavery. He remembers his covenant. God is telling his people that he hears their prayers. And he's now going to act according to past promises. And then in verses 6 through 8, God reveals that his faithfulness doesn't just stem from past promises. It doesn't just reach into the present, but his faithfulness will also endure securely into the future when all of his promises will be fulfilled. I mean, look at me at verses 6 through 8 and just be utterly amazed by the hope God gives regarding future certainty of his acts of deliverance. Verses 6 through 8. Moses is to say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you from, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Friends, did you notice how many times God says, I will? Seven times in three verses, God says, I will, I will, I will deliver you. I will make you my people. I will give you the land. It is just a machine gun repetition of what God Almighty, the eternal, the faithful God, will do in keeping his promises. There can be no doubt here what God will do to deliver his people. There's faithfulness, there's empathy, there's deliverance, there's intimacy, there's inheritance. They're all embraced by the power and the faithfulness of God who declares, I am the Lord. So friends, even though our temporary and our earthly circumstances, they may be harsh, they may be difficult, they may be seemingly long-lasting, and maybe it seems that it's impossible to overcome, God is still faithful. God is the faithful deliverer. And in light of the whole of Scripture, we see that God's promise to be the faithful deliverer is not just for the physical nation of Israel. Because the New Testament is clear that God's ultimate promised descendant from Abraham is who? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then for all of those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone, they all become part of true spiritual Israel in Christ. 
And the promises of God that we see in Exodus, they're not just physical and temporal, but they are spiritual, they are eternal. So in Christ, what do we get in his promises? We become God's people. And God has promised us an eternal and heavenly inheritance in the heavenly Canaan where all things will be made new and all enemies of God's kingdom will be destroyed for the rest of eternity. That is God's ultimate promised deliverance. And so in Romans 8, 29-30, we have similar promises to the ones here in Exodus, but they are expanded. They are greater and they include all people in Christ, not just the ethnic Jews. Paul says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, that's past promises, to be presently conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers as his people in his family, and those whom he predestined past, he also personally called present, and those whom he called, he also justified present, and those whom he justified, he also future glorified into his eternal inheritance. That's our promise. So beloved, no matter what your external circumstances or life situations, no matter hard, how hard and how difficult, God is always the good and the faithful deliverer. God is the faithful deliverer of all of his people, those who are in Christ through repentance and faith. And in the rest of this passage, God is clear, there is nothing. There is absolutely nothing on this earth that can stop his power and his faithfulness to deliver his people. So in Exodus 6 verse 9, we see that God is faithful despite his people's faithlessness. God is faithful despite his people's faithlessness. Right, so after all of the glorious promises of deliverance given by God, it is astounding that when Moses spoke these same words to the people of Israel, what happened? They did not listen to Moses. Why? Verse 9, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The people of Israel, they couldn't lift their eyes past their circumstances to see the bigger vision of who God is and his faithfulness to his promises. But if you read the rest of Exodus, you will see that God's faithfulness to keep all of his promises, they do not depend on the people's faith in those promises. Right? Rather, God acts to destroy his enemies and to deliver his people all because of his sovereign grace and his faithfulness to his promises. This truth reminds us of Romans 5.8 where God shows his love for us when, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is all God. It is all God who is faithful to break down our hard hearts and then give us the eyes to see his glory that we are then delivered and saved as we repent and believe in the gospel through his gift of faith. Moreover, in Exodus 6, 10-13, and 28-30, we also see that God is faithful despite his people's weaknesses. So verses 20-30 is simply a summary and repetition of verses 10-13. Right? Moses is discouraged by his weakness to convince the people of Israel. Moses says, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? So Moses is saying, Hey, if I'm weak in my own people, 
don't listen to my words. How can I be strong enough to speak to Pharaoh? So Moses recognizes his weakness. But in response, God doesn't try to boost Moses' self-esteem. Right? God simply calls Moses, go, speak, trust in my infinitely greater strength and power. So when Moses retreated due to his weakness, God charged him to move forward and obey and speak his word because of God's incomparable strength. And then in Exodus 6, 14-27 and 7-7, we also see that God is faithful despite his people's ordinariness. So their faithlessness, their weakness, and their ordinariness. That's the main point of the genealogy. I mean, there's a lot of other smaller good points that I can make, but that's the main point, that Moses and Aaron, they are ordinary people. The genealogy is partial. It primarily follows the lineage of the tribe of Levi to get to Aaron and to Moses. So if you notice, the only people with years next to their name are the ancestors of Moses and Aaron. And you can just sense the ordinariness and humanness of Aaron and Moses in verses 26 and 28. And chapter 7, verse 7. Hey, these are the Aarons. These are the Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. I mean, can you believe it? And when did they do this? Chapter 7, verse 7. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. All right, so did you notice the contrast? Right, you have ordinary, insignificant, old Moses and Aaron. They were facing off against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, super power royalty. And then for us as God's church, in our battle against God's enemy to set sinners free from slavery to sin, we are likewise ordinary. We are insignificant. We are mere humans. And who are we facing in our battle? We are facing off against Satan, the prince of the power of darkness who holds power over hordes of demons out to destroy us and destroy God's people. That's a contrast that us on our own cannot match. But yet despite this contrast, God still calls Moses, God still calls us as his church to go and to speak God's word, to deliver God's people, because while we are ordinary, the God who uses us is extraordinary. So all in all, despite the people's faithlessness, God is still faithful. Despite the people's weaknesses, God's strength is fully sufficient. And despite the people's ordinariness and mere humanness, God is extraordinary. And God is the only creator and ruler over all creation. Despite unworthiness and inability, God is faithful. And he is all-powerful to deliver his people according to his promises by his almighty and outstretched hand. Nothing in this universe can stop God's power and faithfulness to safely and securely deliver all of his people into his forever kingdom. So friends, what do all these glorious truths mean for us? What does all this mean for us? Well, on a human responsibility level, 
on a human responsibility level, just because God is faithful despite our faithlessness, it doesn't excuse our sin and unbelief. Even though God is faithful, it doesn't excuse our sin and unbelief. So knowing that God is God and seeking to glorify him as God, instead of not listening to God because of a broken spirit, we instead ought to listen to God's word with a hope-filled spirit. With great hope, even if our deliverance from harsh slavery, from persecution, from difficult circumstances, even if it takes a long time. Then, as we seek to listen to God's word with great hope, as we know that God is God, whose strength is infinitely greater than our weaknesses, glorifying God as God means this. It means that we stop making excuses. While we are not in this world loving people and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Yes, we're not sufficient, but he is. So we ought to rejoice in our weaknesses. Rejoicing that God's great power is better displayed as his promises, they remain unhindered by people like us, by weak people like us. And as we recognize that not only are we weak people, but we are ordinary people as well, knowing that God is God and seeking to glorify him as God, it means simple obedience to God's word. Simple obedience to God's word. Look at me at Exodus 7 verse 6. In Exodus 7, verse 6, so thus far in all of Exodus, there's been a lot of back and forth. There's been a lot of Moses and Aaron making excuses, a lot of failures, a lot of unbelief, a lot of people trying to do things their own way, and then being discouraged and without hope. So even after all of this, after seeing a renewed vision of the all-glorious, incomparable God, in Exodus 7, verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they finally recognize their role. What does it say? Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. I mean, finally, right? If you just read through Exodus, you're like, finally, they made it. This is just where God wanted them. And this is just where God wants all of us. Simply put, because God is God and there is no other, we don't need to try to be God. We don't need to try to think of a quote-unquote better plan to try to quote-unquote help God. We simply need to trust that God is God and there is no other and simply be his obedient service. Because even though we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by God's grace and Christ's perfect work on our behalf in the gospel, we are nonetheless saved for good works. So at the end of the day, In Christ, glorifying God as God simply means trusting him and doing all that the Lord commands and in the new life, resurrection power that Christ gives to us in the gospel. Now, beloved, just because, just because knowing this, right, knowing how to glorify God as God is fairly simple, how many of you find this pretty easy? Not me. Right, this is hard. Because as I try to regularly remind the brothers and sisters at Urban Grace, in this world, until Christ returns and completes his certain deliverance of us, what is normal in our experience in this world? Is our normal the best life now? No. Is our normal health, wealth, and prosperity? No. 
our normal is rejection, persecution, suffering. That's the normal. And that's what we should expect as God's people until Jesus returns. And as we have seen in Exodus and in Psalm 73, many times, yes, the arrogant, the wicked, they will prosper. They will always be at ease. They will successfully inflict suffering upon God's people. And when that happens, if our eyes are more focused on our earthly circumstances and the temporary successes of the wicked, we can be tempted to say with the psalmist in Psalm 73 verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. All in vain have I washed my hands in innocence. So how can we get out of this mindset? In verses 16 through 19 in the psalm, the psalmist continues, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until my gaze was lifted up, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly you, God, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So, beloved, when we are faced with trials, rejection, persecution, oppression, injustice, suffering, and the seeming victory of those who oppose God, which we must admit is increasingly happening even in our culture, as Christians and as a church, we must do what God did for Moses and his people. We must not downplay any of these things. Instead, we must regularly and consistently lift people's gaze and preach the sovereignty and the supremacy of God over all things. We must lift people's gaze to the incomparably greater strength, the untainted goodness, the utter faithfulness, and the perfect justice of God who is the one and only God. Only a greater and a bigger vision of God as God will give suffering people like us enduring hope in the midst of seemingly hopeless situations. So yes, the wicked under Satan may rule, they may reign, and they may prosper, but only for a season. But in God's timing, because God is God, God will be the fierce defeater of all his enemies. And when that happens, God will certainly be the faithful deliverer of all of his people. So until that day, beloved, let us join with the psalmist in Psalm 73, 25, 26, saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? You are God. There is no other. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for being God and making us your people in Christ. Thank you for the hope of final deliverance when Christ returns. So God, help us warn people of your just wrath. Help us proclaim the deliverance you offer to all. Help us trust you, obey you, and proclaim your supremacy to all. And may you deliver many more sinners for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' most glorious name. Amen. Amen.